From KYW News Radio 1039 FM, this is Bridging Philly, connecting our communities on the issues that matter to you. Presented by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Hello, I'm Raquel Williams. Welcome to Bridging Philly. Last week, we spoke with Philadelphia authors Richard Dilworth and Brett Mandel about corruption in the city of Philadelphia. They laid the groundwork about the historical aspects of corruption in the city. Today, we talk about how the cost of corruption is paid for by the underserved. The funny thing about corruption is that you only know it if you find it, and people don't want you to find it. And so you have to assume that the corruption you find out about is probably somewhat different from the corruption that you don't find out about. What do Philadelphians want to see in their next mayor? We find out with Sharaday Howard. You know, everybody can talk about what they're going to do is when you get there. Can you be about it, though? Right. Can you be about it? That's it. All that's coming up on Bridging Philly. This is Bridging Philly from KYW News Radio 1039 FM. We continue our conversation about Philadelphia corruption and its history. We pick up the conversation with Richard Dilworth and Brett Mandel by discussing the machine. I asked Richard Dilworth, where in the political machine can we find the most corruption today? So the funny thing about corruption is that you only know it if you find it. Mm. And people don't want you to find it. And so you have to assume that the corruption you find out about is probably somewhat different from the corruption that you don't find out about. That is, it's qualitatively different because you found out about it. And let me also clarify in terms of what we're talking about in terms of corruption. There is the everyday sort of low-level transactional corruption. Um, and maybe I shouldn't say on this radio, but certainly in which I've engaged, in which lots of people engage. You know, you want to get something thrown in the trash truck that's not supposed to go in there you know, somebody's willing to take your money and you can give them money. And, you know, that's pretty ubiquitous. And I, right. you know, and I, and I think lots of people are kind of okay with it. So there's that sort of level of corruption. Then there's the higher level of corruption, the larger contracts and the insider transactions, real estate deals. So I think, and I certainly agree with Brad that, you know, where you're going to look for that corruption, whether or not it exists, is going to be in the places that have the least transparency, typically in the places that are the most, I think, organizationally complex or obscure, because those are the mm -hmm. places where you can hide things the most. Mm -hmm. So the things that people don't typically think about, like where does the city do its banking? Where does the school district do its banking? Who's getting contracts for things that people don't think about right. uh, to a great extent? So you know, in those areas where you have a, a small set of actors, who have worked with each other for long periods of time, not a lot of transparency, and also a level of organizational complexity where you can assume that lots of people aren't going to know what's going on. Another great place is then to look at sort of quasi-governmental areas that are really obscure. So things like government public authorities, like school construction authorities, right. transportation authorities, public housing authorities, Charter schools, quite obscure. Right. Right? Charter school finance, very complex. Politics, I think, often sometimes has the ability to bring together real political power with also a level of celebrity that creates some level of hubris where sort of 
corruption is kind of assumed to be okay and becomes quite visible. Right. And a lot of times becomes almost like a heroic folklore sort of thing, which is not uncommon. Here's how I would answer that question. I think we need to understand what to be looking for when we say corruption. And a lot of times I don't think we recognize it. I think the public thinks of corruption as some uh, unscrupulous developer who is going to put an envelope of cash in front of a tortured elected official who is going to say, oh, I have to take this money for the good of my family mm. uh, and I'm going to have to do this dirty deal or or some unscrupulous politician going to some restaurateur and saying, well, unless you give me a couple of dollars on the side or free meals, I'm going to have licenses and inspection come down here and close your restaurant. Um, and not saying that that kind of thing never exists, but that's rare. What is common in Philadelphia is what is often legal but is corrupt. So in city council, uh, the tradition is that if a local council person opposes something that is happening in his or her neighborhood, well, the rest of council will go along and allow that council person to have rule. Uh, they call that councilmanic prerogative. So essentially that creates a choke point. That creates a one decision maker who can make those decisions on what is good or bad for his or her neighborhood based on a whim mm -hmm. or based on a corrupt dealing. Uh, this is not something that is hidden. This is in the open. Um, another thing to think about is systems that are corrupt. So in Philadelphia, we know that the way real estate taxation is supposed to work is the city is supposed to come out and value your property for tax purposes. That tax value should be something that is about what you could sell your house for under normal conditions today, and then we apply a tax rate to it. That tax assessment in Philadelphia is wrong. It has been wrong for decades. We've made some attempts to fix it, but it continues to be wrong. It is wrong in some very systematic ways. We know it forces some people to pay too much tax. It, it allows some people to pay not as much as they should. Uh, maintaining a system where we know it is rewarding some, punishing others, that is a corrupt system. Mm -hmm. uh, the system of stop and frisk by our police is a corrupt system. There are, quote unquote, legal ways to follow the Constitution and stop people that police have some reasonable suspicion about. Mm -hmm. But many, many people are stopped and frisked and not such great things happen as a result. And many police officers allow this to continue even though they know that there is no reason to stop or frisk an individual. And if we are OK with this, if we don't complain and say, wait a second, we have to fix this practice or we have to elect people in different ways so that they're not beholden to others, well, this will continue. And I guess you can say it depends on who it largely affects. And I think it would be fair to say that it seems like the cost of corruption ends up affecting and falls on the backs of the underserved. Um, they tend to be the ones that are getting the brunt of the results of the corruption. Always. And may not be as outspoken. Always. And uh, the cost of corruption, of course, is hard to pin down, one, because as Richard pointed out, you don't know the extent of corruption. But when you talk about whose opportunity is endangered, whose lives are endangered because of corruption, yeah. generally that falls on the, uh, the folks who can least afford it. And not everybody is going to slip their, uh, their trash man $20 to remove a sofa. Uh, yeah. That's maybe a cost of doing business. Um, but if a building collapses in your neighborhood and people are harmed, 
because some developer paid off an inspector and that building was not demolished correctly, that generally falls on people who can least afford to have something horrible happen to them. Yeah. Brett, you um, actually write extensively on one of the city's most powerful uh, political figures then, um, union boss John Doherty. Um, He was actually instrumental in Mayor Kenny's election. And um, I guess we should just try to find out what we actually learned from his conviction. I think the most important thing that we learn is that public policy in Philadelphia is often driven by corrupt acts and by corruption itself. So John Doherty had very clear private agendas that he wanted advanced. And he was able to advance them because a city councilman that he helped elect was willing to put Doherty's agenda before the public agenda. And in some cases, the mayor that he helped elect was putting Doherty's agenda before the public agenda. And the fun story that emerges from the Doherty uh, corruption case was that the soda tax that now funds some very worthy programs in Mm -hmm. Philadelphia and delivers money that government could purpose for a number of wonderful things emerges as as a whim from John Doherty to punish political rivals. So we're going to impose this soda tax in a way to hurt the Teamsters, who are the folks who uh, deliver a lot of uh, soda in Philadelphia. We're going to punish the Teamsters for uh, for their offenses against John Doherty and cause the Teamsters to lose jobs and, uh, and lose employment uh, because the yeah, the Teamsters were blamed for running a commercial that criticized Doherty during Kenny's uh, election campaign. Uh, that should be troubling to people. Whatever good you think of a soda tax or whatever bad you think of a, a soda tax, you should be troubled by the idea that public policy in Philadelphia is not driven by what's good for 1.6 million people, but by what's good for one vengeful uh, quasi-public official. Bridging Philly continues in a moment. Back to Bridging Philly from KYW News Radio 1039 FM. Philadelphia is just not any city. You know, it's the birthplace of America, and one would think that the city could serve as a blueprint, uh, could serve as an example for how city government uh, should run. Uh, so let's kind of talk about reform and its cycle over time, because of course we want to offer some solutions during this discussion. What are some of the things that the city can do to successfully fight corruption, assuming that everyone's not complicit. By virtue of the fact that Philadelphia has been around for a long time, by virtue of the fact that the Constitution was drafted and signed in Philadelphia, and in some respects, I think that um, as a reflection of the age of the city, they actually, in a lot of respects, um, work against us. Hmm. Just really is sort of the age of the city. You know, as the U.S. population moved west and as new cities were founded and as they grew, there really was a learning curve so that you can look at Western cities and you can say that they hit on some things that were pretty smart. So the city manager idea comes from Western cities, the idea that really almost sort of a parliamentary system, that you have a a weak mayor who sort of serves really as the sort of chairperson of a board, the board being the city council, And in a lot of Western cities, the mayor is simply a member of the city council who happens to be elected at large. And then you leave the administration to somebody who's supposed to be a professional city manager, someone who's appointed by the city council who doesn't themselves stand for election, 
And then, as in Philadelphia, you have a you have a civil service system. The attempt was to retrofit all of these things into Philadelphia, which had this incredibly convoluted sort of 19th century government of a bicameral city council and government really sort of occurring through council committees that were effectively the governments of certain neighborhoods and a mayor who was kind of just the police chief and didn't do a lot. And then through a series of charter changes, we try to change things. I think Brett pointed out that one of the ironies of reform in Philadelphia is that every time the city tries to change the, the charter, 1887, 1919, 1951, mm-hmm. it almost always empowers the political machine. At the same time, uh, certainly I think that there have been um, lots of improvements. I think that our managing director system, the fact that we have this sort of quasi city manager in the form of a managing director, was certainly an important reform and an important position from a reform perspective. Okay. Taking advantage of new technologies for transparency, the 311 system and putting more budget information that's easily accessible and readable online, making the annual budget process something that could actually be understood by normal citizens, I think would be a major improvement. And also making contracting and quasi-governmental organizations more transparent would be really important. Understand. Okay. In the final chapter of the book, uh, I go into uh, listings of reforms that can make some sense, including changing some of our campaign finance laws and uh, eliminating our row offices, which is, uh, have been a, a vestige of patronage and, uh, and corruption for, for decades and decades. Uh, but ultimately, uh, all of the transparency in the world, all of the, uh, the technical improvements of the way government operates, all of the expansion of the civil service system and the curtailing of you know, at-will political employees – that's only going to be good and it's only going to be helpful if we step up and demand better government, uh, if we are going to create consequences for politicians for being corrupt, if we are going to speak up when we see things. Uh, it is not easy to be the one person who blows the whistle. It is not easy to be mm-hmm. the one person who stands up and says, wait a second, I don't think that this is right. Um, especially in Philadelphia where everybody understands that everyone's trying to get something for free and it's a little fix and you know who, who are we to blame when, when someone tries to get a little something for nothing. Um, unless we ourselves step up and stop consenting to the corruption, it continues. So we can yeah. put in place all the systems we want. We can change all the laws that we want. We can make things more accessible, more transparent. But if we are not going to stand up and say, wait a second, if you act in a corrupt manner, uh, you wear a scarlet C, we create a, uh, a social sanction. If we're not going to stand together and say, the people who look the other way when corrupt actions were happening face an electoral consequence. So ultimately, corruption's a mirror for us. And if we look in the mirror and are happy with what we see, we should continue it. If we look in the mirror and say this state of the city is unsatisfying, we need to change it. Right. And that can happen at the ballot box. Of course of it course. can. But it would have been nice if some members of the uh, current class of uh, mayoral wannabes said that they were going to do something about corruption during this campaign. So far, they have not. Maybe, maybe, maybe they will sometime soon. We'll, 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 we'll actually see about that. Um, it's And speaking of this uh, mayoral race, let's just get your take on it. What's your general take? What does it look like for you? I think it looks like a difficult choice for citizens because, one, there are so many. Um, 
there are not marked differences between the candidates. It's not like uh, one person would like to pave the streets with gold and uh, somebody else wants to tear up the streets and, uh, and, and not have them be uh, walkable or drivable. Ultimately, I think the biggest concern that I have in this race is that someone is going to exit the Democratic primary winning 20 low percent of the vote and have to govern with what you could call no mandate or with uh, a significant portion of the uh, the population, or at least the Democratic primary electorate, voting against them. And that's going to be difficult. Mm. Uh, Philadelphia is not an easy city to govern, period. It becomes very hard if you don't have popular backing. And while I think there are talented candidates and uh, I think that uh, there is a lot of good that the candidates would like to do for the city, if someone gets elected with 22 percent of the vote in a contentious uh, primary and then goes on to win the uh, general election, I'm not so sure how that person's going to govern. Got it. Richard? Something I've been struck by is the difference between the 2023 election and the 2015 election. In 2015, we had an open mayoral primary, and certainly some people wanted to be mayor, but in a lot of respects, it felt like no one wanted to be mayor. Uh, especially when, I mean, obviously this is a small town in some respects, you don't want to talk too badly about people, but um, Alan Butkovitz wouldn't get off of the fence in terms of whether he was going to run or not. And uh, Jim Kenney entered the race late, only after he could sort of poach people from Trujillo's candidacy. It had a very different feel. So move ahead today to 2023, and I know that this is a pretty vague statement, but the political energy is completely different in this election versus in 2015. Mm-hmm. First of all, and here, I don't want to say anything about any specific candidates, but I have to say that I think that the political talent on display in 2023 is just heads and tails above what you had in 2015. One of the things that you said that uh, that I pick up on in the, in the book is uh, you don't want to talk bad about anybody. <laughs> and, and of course, that's a defining characteristic of Philadelphia's corruption problem. We are all connected to each other. In in the hometown of Kevin Bacon, we are all one or two degrees removed from each other. So it's not necessarily that, uh, that the way corruption works in Philadelphia is that some nefarious corrupt actor is trying to uh, pressure a righteous person. It's often that uh, some righteous friend of some other righteous person who is friends with a corrupter comes and says, hey, look, you know, uh, can you help my guy out here? Can we do something? I, I know you want to oppose my guy, but uh, I've got some things going on with him. Can you do this as a favor to me? Uh, so the unwillingness to name names and to and to speak up is, is a, again, a defining characteristic. What I would say about each of the mayoral candidates who is running this year, but not one of them called for Bobby Heenan to resign from city council after he was uh, indicted, after he was convicted. Not one of them stood up and said, um, this is bad. We need to have a reform package of new laws in Philadelphia because what we've seen here with the, with the Doherty Heenan case is that we need to reform something. So no matter who you're voting for, the defining characteristic of the folks running this year is that they have all consented to the corruption by not saying anything. And uh, Often it is said that the next mayor will be a reflection of what we are frustrated with about our current mayor. And I think that to Richard's point about some number of people wanting to be mayor and wanting to do the job, I think it's a great reflection on the fact that our current guy really doesn't seem to want to do the job and doesn't seem to have much energy for Mm -hmm. the job. Mm -hmm. But one of the reasons that that seems to be the case is that when he was put into office, 
the forces that put him into office were there to make sure that they could get a little something for themselves by the fact that he was in office. And then once John Doherty was indicted and then ultimately convicted, a lot of the political power, a lot of the juice behind the Jim Kenney mayoralty went out of the room. So uh, it is good that somebody wants to do the job. I would love to think that the next mayor is going to bring some energy and enthusiasm. Of course, one of the things I would like that uh, the next mayor brings some energy and enthusiasm to do is to push back against corruption. Yeah. Hopefully we will see that. I enjoyed this discussion. Very insightful. Um, Richard Dilworth, author of Reforming Philadelphia, 1682 to 2022. Brett Mandel, author of the book, Philadelphia Corrupt and Consenting, A City Struggle, against an epithet. Thank you both so much for joining us and for shedding light on this very important issue. And we'll be definitely talking about that heading all the way into the mayoral race. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Bridging Philly continues in a moment. Back to Bridging Philly, connecting our communities on the issues that matter to you. The Philadelphia race for mayor is heating up and the primary election is just around the corner. What do Philadelphians want to see in their next mayor? Sharad A. Howard was out and about speaking with voters in the city to find out. Philadelphia, the city of firsts, a city that takes grit, hard knocks and the title of underdog as seriously as it takes its leadership. If you could love here, you could love anywhere. I'm, I'm saying, though, this is a city of brotherly love. You're looking at the underdog to trials and tribulations. We all go through that. Especially the top job of mayor. Now, what does a Philly mayor have to have to get it right? Who got a lot, a lot of guts and some heart. We don't like quitters, and we don't give anybody anything easy. You got to be fair. I said it's going to be a woman. Philly, you got to be open-minded, got to have great morals. One of the main qualities is competency. And it's known that it's a city that requires tough talk, but it's got to be real talk. And that matters now more than ever, as the city will be electing its 100th mayor. And with only a couple of weeks to go before voters cast their ballots, there are only nine in the running, with eight seeking the nomination ahead of the Democratic mayoral primary and one Republican. And these five are leading the pack. Rebecca Reinhardt, Cheryl Parker, Helen Gim, Alan Dom and Jeff Brown. So we hit a few of Philly's hot spots, parks, community centers, and businesses asking Philly who they're voting for and what should be at the top of the next mayor's to-do list. And no surprise here, but gun violence was everyone's main concern. And no one more than Tanya Camper from Germantown. I met her while she was pulling potatoes from the fryer at her restaurant, Vlicious, which she named after her son V, who she lost to gun violence a few years ago. And she says the city, it needs to do more to save its sons. High crime in Philadelphia, as we all know, it's no new no, no story. Everyone's hearing about it. My son was murdered by gun violence. Many mothers, as myself, um, are grieving for the loss. And if city politics, I believe, if they took it a little more serious and got these killers off the street, got these guns off the street, then possibility my son would still be here and many other children would probably be here. And this next mayor, what can the next mayor do to help you help others? Clear these streets with crime, open up more opportunity for the children to have places to go and also to give black women business opportunities. Then a woman of color in Philly's LGBTQ communities agrees that women and other marginalized communities need more assistance, protection, and compassion. Now the mayor's race is almost upon us. What are your thoughts? Who are you leaning toward? 
Well, generally it feels like a mess. It feels really messy. Um, and I'm not like super satisfied or sold on anybody, but the person I feel like maybe the most comfortable with is Helen Gim. What about her stands out? <laughs> it seems like there's a common sense. Like she, she sort of like fills the cup in terms of common sense and a thoughtfulness there. Like maybe a, a gentle hand, a gentler hand than some other candidates. And is that what Philadelphia needs right now? Do you feel like we need more compassion and intelligence? I a combination really, maybe? I really do, yeah. I really think that Helen has shown that that there's a lot of care that's needed, right? There's a lot that needs to happen and it's not always the best policy to like have a heavy hand. Uh, lots of folks struggling out here, especially in this community. And I think that um, like you go block to block and you can see the different conditions that folks are living in. And I think that poverty definitely needs to be addressed. And I think that education is a huge you know, conversation that this city needs to have. Um, and, you know, there are corners, there are people having those conversations. And she hit the nail right on the head. People like Mike in North Philly are having these conversations. The mayor's race, I think the mayor's race is really intriguing because uh, all the candidates are pretty good. But I think the people need to look at who can do best for the city. And I think Alan Dunn can do best for the city. In what areas do you think that he can really tackle well, these issues? I just issues? think the way he he wants to approach education in Philadelphia by changing things the way they the way they're normally done. Uh, education is the real problem in Philadelphia. We don't educate our young people in the, in the elementary areas. We don't give them what they need to move on and be successful high school students. We really pay them no mind. I worked in the school system. I know what I'm talking about. You really pay them no mind. You put them in school someplace and you leave them. The schools are shabby. They're dark. They, they invite violence. They invite uh, any type of uh, negativity that a kid may be going through. Uh, young people grow up with no hope sometimes here, especially in places like North Philly, West Philly, and, uh, and South Philly. Because I believe if you change that, then you'll change the direction this city is going into. And not too far from where I met Mike, I took a walk with John Dye Harrell, executive director of the TCRC Community Healing Center in the heart of North Philly at the corner of Lycoming Street, one of the largest food pantries in the city, but he says operating with one of the smallest budgets. We are the people who are on the street level doing the work. We're feeding Philly families, you know, and the resource organizations are providing the resources, but the infrastructure and the transportation system needs to be solidified. I'm putting gas in the cars of my volunteers as they are moving forward. And I'm doing that on small donations from the public. So let's talk about the actual infrastructure, like the bigger picture. Philly needs to improve how they view small organizations. There are so many nonprofits. In fact, I, I have friends who are burnt out. You know, um, I have a sister who does food distribution at um, 17th and, and Susquehanna out of a storage container. And she's been doing it five, six years, you know, and she has a small staff, she has, you know, one truck, and she's burned out because she can't get the funding to run an organization properly. But the next level is serious funding. I need to be able to pay drivers. I need to be able to, to pay workers. And above all, we need to be able to sustain ourselves, pay our bills, and do all the things, and also have, you know, um, health insurance. You know, I need to be able to provide 
for my people on the level that any viable corporation was. And that brought up the topic of a livable wage, but also back around to gun violence, making sure kids are off the streets, maybe working, going to school, community centers, but number one, getting the guns out of their hands. Something Stacy Taylor from West Philly and Aziza from Germantown say is a must. All right, now Mayor's race is here. Who are you looking at? Sherelle Parker, Jim Brown. Why? Gun violence. There's a lot of guns. People have guns. How are you gonna, how are you gonna get the guns? The gun laws, the gun laws. It's too many of us being gunned down on the streets. It's unsafe here. We need some kind of change and we need somebody that's gonna be about the change. Help us get it right. We lose too many of our babies, people period. And the gun laws, the guns is what's doing it, you know? Everybody is able to get a gun. These children have nowhere to go. They didn't close down the basketball courts. You know, it's just not nothing for nobody to do. We need change. So who do you think can provide a little change? There are a couple women running. Anybody look good to you? Well, I've been watching, I think, Kim. Um, I think she's looking pretty good. You know, everybody can talk about what they're gonna do is when you get there. Can you be about it though? Right, can you be about it? That's it. <laughs> <laughs> Being about it and putting some action into play. That's what Regina from South Philly says is needed when it comes to building community in Philly. Yeah, so my, my biggest concerns is um, just the gun violence. Um, it's out of control. It's like we are, we don't, everything is kind of chaotic now. The streets are chaotic. Um, the potholes, the... Those rumbly bumbly streets. Oh my goodness, it's ridiculous. So you want someone who's gonna not only speak to these issues of gun violence, also of course education, the infrastructure, the streets are rumbly bumbly. Absolutely. But my biggest thing is is the building of the community because I think if we could get the community together and on one accord, one good and positive accord, all the other things will fall into place. Election day is Tuesday, May 16th. Thanks for joining us for Bridging Philly, brought to you by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Be sure to connect with us on Twitter at Bridging Philly, at Raquel on Air, and at Shara Day. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. For Shara Day Howard and our producer, Patty McMahon, I'm Raquel Williams. Be well. <laughs> <laughs>